This morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Genesis chapters 10 and 11. This morning, Genesis 10 and 11. The world is full of people who want to be known in the present and who want to be remembered in the future. And so consequently, men build monuments to themselves to promote their names now and to preserve their memory for future generations to come. And it may be those monuments take the shape of uh, the branding of a company or perhaps the building of a building or the writing of an autobiography. I think of the real estate mogul turned U.S. president, Donald Trump, and his Trump Tower. Do you know where the Trump Tower is? Anybody know where the Trump Tower is? Some of you may say, New York, New York. Others might say, no, it's in Las Vegas, Nevada. Others would answer Atlanta, Georgia, or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or Denver, Colorado, or Boston, Massachusetts, or Tampa, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, or any number of places overseas. And each of those answers is correct. For every building that Donald Trump has purchased or built, he has named after himself Trump Tower. Now, I'm not making a statement about politics, but about people. And if we had the billions of dollars to do the same, we might do the same. Because people want to make a name for themselves and be remembered. Each of us want to have a legacy to preserve our name and memory. And in the generations after the great flood, a great monument was built to the reputation and the remembrance of man. We, we know it as the Tower of Babel. And the building of a building like the Tower of Babel is not necessarily an evil. However, the building of the building, the Tower of Babel, was a symptom of evil in that day. Look with me to Genesis 11, verse number 4. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, Genesis 11, verse number 4. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This morning we are going to study the Bible's account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Let me pause for prayer. God, may it not be us, but you. Not I, but Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the stark contrast between those in Noah's day the generations that followed, that built this tower to make a name for themselves, and and John the Baptist, who said, he must increase, I must decrease. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a spirit of humility as we approach your holy word. May your spirit, your Holy Spirit, be our teacher, and may we learn important lessons from the error of these generations, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've simply titled my my message, The Tower of Babel. I, I want us to know that Genesis 10 and 11 are about much more than an ancient building program. For these chapters are not only about what man determined to do, 
but more importantly about what God determined to do. And so if you'll trace the larger context with me, beginning in chapter 9, verse number 1, you might need to turn a page back to chapter 9, verse 1. Look there. God commanded Noah and his sons, chapter 9, verse 1, to fill the earth. If we then look at chapter 11, verse 4, I read it a moment ago, chapter 11, verse 4, look there, the people defied God's command to fill the the earth and they tried to present I'm sorry, prevent their scattering over the face of the whole earth, the end of verse number four. So that in chapter 11, verse nine, now look there, God confused their languages, compelling them to scatter, where? Abroad, over the face of the earth, fulfilling God's purpose back in chapter nine, verse number one. And so this account is ultimately about God's purposes in the affairs of of man. But as our eyes quickly scan Genesis 10 and 11, we find that these chapters are filled with the names of men. These chapters are lists of genealogies, the generations of Noah. So what do we do with the genealogies? Well, in that all scripture is profitable, 2 Timothy 3.16 And in that the things that were written before were written for our learning, Romans 15, verse number four, we need to take note of these genealogies in chapters 10 and 11 and ask why. Why did God preserve these lists of names, these genealogies for us? What do they contribute to the account of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, verses one through nine? An impartial answer to those questions, I've printed at the top of your notes an interpretive key for our study this morning. The story of the Tower of Babel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, that's going to be the focus of our study. It precedes chronologically the ethnological table given in Genesis 10. That is, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, actually precedes chapter 10. The ethnological table set before us sets before us the completeness of the dispersion of mankind. The story of the Tower of Babel explains the cause of that dispersion. So God has given us the genealogies in chapter 10 to explain the result of what happened in chapter 11. So then, before we go to chapter 11, verses one through nine, we need to examine the results of chapter 11, one through nine, by reading the genealogies in chapter 10. I hope that's clear and not confusing. In chapter 10, the Bible divides mankind into three basic, three basic people groups that descend from the three sons of Noah. And this is the ethnic division of mankind from Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Look at chapter 10, verse numbers two through five. The sons of Japheth. Chapter 10, verse number two. The sons of Japheth were. The sons of Japheth became the principal people groups of Europe, and the Asiatic Aryans, all right? Look ahead to chapter 10, verse number six and following. This lists the sons of Ham. Verse six says, the sons of Ham were. The sons of Ham became the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, the Southern Arabs, and the early Babylonians. Look now to chapter 10, verse 21. Lists the sons of Shem. Verse 21, and the children were born also to Shem. The sons of Shem became the Semitic families, including the Assyrians, the Hebrews, and the Joktanite Arabs. 
And so we have here the ethnic division of the three sons of Noah, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Altogether, 70 descendants of Noah are listed. 14 from Japheth, 30 from Ham, and 26 from Shem. And so what we read here in Genesis 10 is a a typical family tree. However, the primary purpose of this genealogical record is not to trace ancestry, although it does do that, but to show affiliation. The genealogical record in chapter 10 records and identifies more than the genetics or the descendants of Noah. It really identifies the geography when God scattered mankind because of the Tower of Babel and it explains to us their location and position in the world. So rather than noting just the ethnic division from the three sons of Noah, let's go back now and let's notice the geographic distribution of the three sons of Noah and their descendants after the Tower of Babel. It would be too comical for me to read all of these names, but I want you to notice the location and the division. Look back to chapter 10, verse number five. Chapter 10, verse 5, from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. This is a geographic distribution, everyone according to his language. Different languages, you see here, according to their families, into their nations. Look at verse number 10, chapter 10, verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of where? Of Shinar. This is a location, verse 11. From that land he went to Assyria, built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, and Kalah. Verse number 12. And resin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the, the principal city. Jump to verse number 18, the end of verse 18. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. Where? And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. Then you go down toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Laisha. You see these locations. Look at verse 20. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, different languages, in their lands and in their nations. Jump to verse number 30, chapter 10, verse number 30. And their dwelling place was from Misha as you go toward Safar in the mountains of the east. These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to the generations in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood, the division of these these nations. Do do you get the picture here? And so they're describing the, the, the dispersion, the scattering of the peoples from the three sons of of Noah to different lands with different languages. Now, how do we know that Genesis 10 precedes Genesis, I'm sorry, follows Genesis 11? Genesis 11 precedes, see, I'm going to get myself confused here, right? We're inverting 10 and 11. How does Genesis 10 follow Genesis 11? Look at Genesis 11, verse number one. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Now wait a minute. All through chapter 10, we read of the different languages that were present among the different people groups. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 31, they were divided by language. Back to chapter 10, verse 20, tells us they were divided by language. And so what I've printed for you there at the top of your notes, that's before you on the screen, the story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 precedes chronologically the ethnological table given in Genesis 10. 
the ethnological table, the genealogies, sets before us the completeness of what God accomplished after the Tower of Babel. So now we come to chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And a little bit more of the, of the detail would be the structure of these verses, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. The narrative is structured in antithetical parallelism or chiasm. And here's what that means. It means that everything that mankind purposed to do in the first few verses, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, is then reversed or it's inverted in the second half of the narrative, verses 5 through 11. So look at chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. The people wanted to build a city, right? They, but then in verse 8, they ceased building a city. The people wanted to prevent their scattering over the whole earth at the end of verse number 4. But what happened in verses 8 and 9? God scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And, and so there's an inverted chiasm, this, par- this antithetical parallelism. And the whole record now of the Tower of Babel hinges on verse number 5. Verse 5, Genesis 11 verse 5, but the Lord. <laughs> Anytime God intervenes in the affairs of man, you need to take note. This is the hinge between verses one through four and verses six through nine. Verse five, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man built. So let's look at the the account, the biblical record of the the building of the Tower of Babel. I'll begin again in, in chapter 11, verse number one. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they, they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And because the world's population at this time had a common ancestor, that was of course Noah, the people all spoke a common or the same language, verse number one. Now, there's nothing wrong with a common language. I am so glad that, at least for now, English is the common language in the United States because I don't speak any other language, you see. And so I'm grateful that there's a common language. The the one language and the one speech in verse number one is not the evil and it was not even the cause of the evil. The one language and the one speech among the descendants of Noah was the instrument that God used to correct the evil. The evil was their disobedience to God's command back in chapter nine, verse number one, to fill the earth. And folks, from the beginning, evil has always been disobedience to God's command. That's why we know it's evil, it's disobedience. And Noah's sons... They, they did not obey God's command, but they settled in a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there, verse number two, chapter 11, verse two. They did not fill the earth in obedience to God's command, back in chapter nine, verse one. And there in Shinar, Shinar is in southern Mesopotamia. It would be modern Kuwait in Iraq. They purposed to build a city and a tower to signify and pr- promote the unity of the human race. Folks, they wanted there to be one world. 
And this is the first federation of nations, if you will. And ironically, the first United Nations is not so unlike the current United Nations nor the future United Nations in the end. Revelation 17 and 18 explains a similar thing will happen in the end. Even today, globalists are always aspiring for one world. But there are a few things that we need to note here about the the people's building of their city and their tower. First, their materials were perishable. Their materials were perishable there in verses one through three. And rather than stone and mortar, they used clay and tar. Now, clay brick, it, it's, it's just hardened clay. And it's really a fitting symbol for mankind, for we were made of dust. To dust we, we shall return. The apostle Paul said that we're just earthen vessels. We're jars of clay were clay pots and nothing made out of dirt can ultimately endure. I think it's such a contrast to the heavenly stones or the, the precious stones that will be part of the heavenly city in the book of Revelation. But they were determined to use the material that they had, clay, hardened clay, dirt, brick, and, and tar or, or just pitch. Look at verse number four. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Number one, their materials were perishable. Number two, their method was pagan. Now, the expression whose top is in the heavens is curious. Were they really trying to build a tower that would physically reach the next level of our atmosphere? Was their tower, the Tower of Babel, intended to be taller than our modern skyscrapers? Is that what the the text is teaching us? I did a little homework. Right now, the the tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Some of you, I I suppose, have been there, have seen that. It stands 2,684 feet tall. By comparison, one World Trade Center in New York stands... 1,776 feet tall. The old Sears Tower, now called Willis Tower, maybe you've been to the top of that tower in Chicago, it's 1,450 feet tall. So follow this. We've got 2,684, 1,776, we've got 1,450. How about the IDS building in Minneapolis? That's a tall building. You go to a Twins game, you're sitting there, you can can look right at it. Uh, 792 about half as tall as the Willis Tower in Chicago. In fact, I did some math. It means if you put the IDS Tower of Minneapolis on top of One World Trade Center in New York City, it would not be as tall as the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. How about that? But the idea here in Genesis 11 was to build a tower, not necessarily that it would be tall enough to reach the heavens as, as in the sense of absolute height, but literally this could be translated that would be topped by the heavens. That is the signs of the zodiac. And astronomical and astrological data was to be associated with this tower. You see, it was a pagan effort for God was not in any of their thoughts. As we read earlier in Psalm 10, verse number four, stargazing and occultism were to be the features 
were to top this tower, if you will, and their religious system. Their method was pagan. How about this? Their motive was prideful. Their motive was prideful. There at the end of verse number four, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Folks, the shameless idea was to glorify themselves, to strengthen humanity by maintaining a a union. But this was in defiance to God's will. Chapter nine, verse one, to fill the earth. I would offer you number four, their mistake was perspective. Their mistake was perspective. Allow me to read, picking up in verse number five, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they shall have one language and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. They, they will accomplish what they set out to do. Verse seven, come let us go down that they there and, there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Folks, their mistake was perspective. And and these, these verses are such a rich satire on the folly of man's activity. Man begins to build a city and a high tower that they thought would make a name from that, for, for them. And from their vantage point on earth, the top of the tower might pierce the clouds or the top of the tower would give, give a recognition of, of the zodiac and the stars and, and, and some of their religion. From their perspective, the tower could be seen from everywhere around just like the Minneapolis skyline can be seen from our own church property here. You can see the IDS Tower from our property. You can see the Tower of Babel from every location. That was their perspective. However, from God's perspective above, God Almighty, it was barely a visible dot on the face of the earth. And so what did God have to do there in verse number five? God had to come down to see. (laughs) It was so small. God had to come down to see what was happening. And it was God who, if you will, had to stoop to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. You see, folks, their mistake was, was their perspective. They were looking from the ground below, not from heaven above and they forgot about God. And folks, we often do the same. We are ground-bound earthlings who are always looking at the earth below, and we leave God out of our planning, and we don't consider God's will in the matter, and we rule God out of our thinking, and therefore we imagine that we have rid ourselves of God only to find that his answer to such folly is swift and lasting judgment in the pursuit of his purposes, what he wills to do. Folks, we make this mistake. Let me just get practical for a moment. We make this mistake in all of our building. We don't all build skyscrapers, but we build careers, and we build portfolios, and we build families, and we forget 
to consider how God sees our building. So what do we do with this account? This ancient Bible story from just some years after the great flood. Let me offer you five principles that can help us. These are not original with me, but I found them to be helpful. I thought I would share them with you. And I've, I've not given you single word blanks to fill in, but rather I want you to write these in long form. These principles, takeaways from this Old Testament text. Number one, man's plans will never prevent God from accomplishing his purposes. Man's plans will never prevent God from accomplishing his purposes. God had commanded Noah and his sons to fill the earth, chapter nine, verse one, but instead they attempted to remain together. However, in spite of their greatest efforts, God's purposes prevailed. And folks, a life that's lived in resistance to the revealed will of God will only end in frustration and failure. You can ignore God's commands. You can defy God's commands, but at the end of the day, you will not prosper because God is God. And God will do what he determines to do. I would offer you Isaiah 55. You know it well. God speaks to us. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but the water of the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God will do what he says he will do and we ought to bow in submission to his lordship and say, thy will be done. Number one, number one, man's plans will never prevent God from accomplishing his purposes. Number two, unity is not the greatest good. Obedience to God's word is. Unity is not the greatest good. Obedience to God's word is. It's impressive to see a large crowd of people in one place for one cause. You can put a million people on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. That's, in, that's impressive. It's exciting to, to be part of a large group of people in one place for one cause. Maybe 100,000 people in a football stadium. That's exciting. It's compelling when a large crowd of people gathers for, for a cause. And it's, of course, one of the, the motivators behind ecumenism and the idea of a one world religion. But, folks, true unity can never be attained apart from the obedience to God's word. Read Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. He did pray for unity among his disciples, but he prayed that God would sanctify them by his truth. God's word is truth. And so the deception of, of these in this generation after the great flood at the Tower of Babel was that somehow unity was the greatest good. It's not. Let me offer you this, number three. Superficial relationships and activities miss the meaning of life. Superficial 
relationships and activities will miss the meaning of life. Everyone wants to be someone to make a name for themselves in the world, to write a book, to patent an invention, to build a company, to make a million, to live large with the who's who of society, to be part of the upper crust. Do you know uh, one person has wisely warned that the definition of upper crust, you know the definition of the upper crust is? It's a few crumbs with dough to hold it together, right? That's what the upper crust is, a few crumbs with some dough to keep it together. But what holds our lives together? Those in the land of Shinar try to place their security, keep it together in the building of a city with bricks and tar. We might say it was a house of cards, and we fall into the same trap and we create programs and we keep busy so that we might have some sense of involvement and activity and we build houses and buy cars to validate ourselves and attract people to us, but it can create an artificial sense of accomplishment. Number four, the word of God, not the works of our hands, is the only thing worthy of our faith. The word of God not the works of our hands is the only thing worthy of our faith. And, and the men at Babel looked to their works as the cure when it was in fact their curse. They believed that the works of their hands could assure them of significance. That's probably what drives the workaholics among us. I'm one of them. Number five, most of what man builds on this earth is a monument to his insecurity. You see, folks, behind the facade of every achievement and accomplishment is the haunting notion of leaving this life and not being remembered for significance. I think that's some of Solomon's conclusion in the book of Ecclesiastes. He accomplished so much, but it was vanity to him. Most of what man builds on this earth is a monument to his insecurity. I need to conclude. Let me offer you this. It's not printed for you, but before you on the screen, the significance of this little story is great. It explains to God's people how the nations were scattered abroad, yet the import goes much deeper the new nation of Israel would, only, would need only sur- survey the many nations around her to perceive that God disperses and curses the rebellious, bringing utter confusion and antagonism among them. If Israel would obey and submit to God's will, that's what I would underscore, then she would be the source of blessing to the world. Unfortunately, Israel also raised her head in pride and refused to obey the Lord God. Thus, she too was scattered across the face of the earth in judgment. So what lesson does it, this leave for us? We're, we're not Israel. How about this? And I'm, I'm done. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Whether it was the ancients, whether it's God's chosen people, Israel, or whether it's the New Testament church, whether it's the United States of America or Minnesotans, whatever group of people that you might divide and designate, Righteousness exalts, but sin is a reproach. Pray, pray for your group of people. 
Pray for the state of Minnesota. Pray for the United States of America. Vote here in a week or so and live rightly before Almighty God. And then do not be wise in your own eyes. For there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. That is the legacy of these early chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden, and these generations here in the building of the Tower of Babel. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, forgive us for our arrogance and our pride. Lord, forgive us for our disobedience. We know that you will accomplish your purposes. May we bend the knee, bow the knee in submission to your lordship. God, I pray that you would help us to follow after you as you lead us in paths of righteousness. For your name's sake, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.